0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. We are back in our Reclaim series in the Gospel of Luke, and this one's called Moving from Healed to Healer. And the question for you to start off with today is, what did it mean to be a disciple when you were growing up? Enjoy. We are back in the Gospel of Luke. We've been here the entire year. We took off a little bit of time in the summer to do a question series, Uh, but we're in the Gospel of Luke because we're this community that is dealing with deconstruction and reconstruction. Some of you find yourself there. And the Gospel of Luke is this Gospel that is all about being on a journey. There's a lot of movement in the Gospel because it's about the human narrative. That the Jesus narrative isn't about somebody who lived 2,000 years ago, died and rose again. The Jesus narrative is about experiencing the risen Christ now, which is another way of saying that Jesus shows us the very best of what it means to be human and the very fullness of who God is. And so the Jesus narrative, the disciples, it's all really about what does it mean to be on this human journey? And so we are in Luke 9, and it is September, so by 2021, people are really going to finish up Luke, (laughs) and it's going to be good. So we're going to talk about a few things today. Mainly what I want to get to is how do we move from being people who need healing? Because we need healing. I grew up in a Christian world where we didn't talk about emotional and physical wellness uh, very often or very well. All we talked about was spiritual stuff. If you just do some Bible studies and you go to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and maybe a little Wednesday night, do your appropriate amount of quiet time, then everything will be okay, my friends, right? But it didn't work that way. People were still getting divorces. People still hated each other. People still didn't know how to deal with justice in the world because what we weren't teaching is the full human experience. That you can memorize the entire Bible and still be an asshole. (laughs) Who would have thought? I sit at a Thanksgiving table every year with family members who are only going to heaven and they're assholes. (laughs) I'm dead serious. It's fascinating to me. So we need to move from finding some healing, then also becoming some healers. And if we're gonna do that well, then we gotta talk about some things we got to talk about Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. <laughs> Harry Potter fans out there, you already know where this is going if you've been here before. It, two, come on, when was the last book come out? 2008? Some people are still reading that. Dumbledore... <laughs> <laughs> Do you First time? First time? You've never read it? No. There's, one, there's like one innocent little kitty in here who I can't kill and say who dies in book six, which I won't say their name. I'm just saying somebody dies. We're going to talk about healed. We're going to talk about the statement on social justice and the gospel. Does anyone know what that is? All right, seven of you. For the rest of you, good for you that you don't know. Uh, fear and love, tools for the road, leave it better than you found it, and then how do we become some... Healers, but first, let me talk about the school of witchcraft and wizardry. I went to a private evangelical Christian university, which I shall not name. It rhymes with Schmussmuzik, Pacific University. <laughs> and in this environment, you are also—you're not—you are disciples and scholars. So part of what happens in this environment is you're trying to, like, be. A little bit more of a one-up Christian than your fellow brother and/or sister, right? This is just part <laughs> of what happens there, and so in this environment, a, a couple of ways in which you do that. If you were a youth ministry major, it definitely meant that you were shirtless playing your guitar on Trinity Lawn, <laughs> because you were a youth ministry major. But for other people, what it meant is you got to know more of the Bible. I'm not joking about this, but I'm also dead serious, right? And there was also this movement when I was there about charismatic experiences. That if you could control these charismatic experiences, that showed that you were closer to the divine, right? And so we would kind of get into it and it would be about like who can pray louder, like who laughs more in chapel or like who uh, was like speaking in tongues or who was like offering prophecy to one another. And some of it was really beautiful and incredibly powerful and some of it was a bunch of college kids trying to one-up each other. Right? And so my sophomore year, I was this thing called a bridge leader. Uh, And it was my sophomore year, which I say if you were in sophomore, that's the greatest time to be alive because that is the one year on planet Earth that you are smarter than everybody. Right? So it's wonderful. Um, And we are in San Francisco and we're on this retreat with 100 different leaders. By the way, uh, Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry is my experience at AP with charismatic stuff is what I'm saying, just in case you're not tracking with me. And we're there um, and we're in San Francisco and I kid you not, uh, this girl, we're in the middle of prayer time and every time the name Jesus comes about, she starts shrieking and uh, kind of like going into like, convulsions on the floor. We're a bunch of 19-year-olds there and there are no other leaders in the room. So talk about some good times, right? So all of us proven leaders, right, do what we have been trained to do for the last two and a half weeks. And uh, people start, like, praying for her and, like, exercising demons. And I'm, like, joking about it, but it was terrifying, right? There's a girl, like, shrieking and convulsing on the floor every time Jesus is mentioned. And we're all, like, what? Exclerbilliamus or whatever. I don't know what those—is <laughs> that a smell? It wasn't working, right? My one friend, Robin—Robin Robin Fawcett, I hope you are listening to this. All of a sudden, he's praying, and all, he just out of nowhere goes— God, would you just pour out your sweet nectar of life? <laughs> and in that moment, I go from charismatic magic to weeping, crying, laughing so hard, having to exit the room. <laughs> While girl is still convulsing on floor, by the way. Because he just sweet nectar of life does. <laughs> and I don't care who you are and where you're at, that's funny. <laughs> it's just funny. But it's like no one else heard it. Everyone just kept on, I bought a Honda. should have bought a Hyundai, like, you know? <laughs> All right, I'm the only one that heard that. (laughs) I'm a closet charismatic, by the way. I believe in spiritual gifts. I think that the tradition of Christianity is wide, that there are things seen and unseen, so to speak, in the world that are far beyond us. I I believe in mystery. I believe in awe. I believe in wonder. So I don't say all that to mock it in, in, in any means. What I do believe wholeheartedly is that you had a lot of young people without any actual experience. And it was the blind leading the blind. And what I believe about Jesus is that Jesus is incredibly gracious to us in our processes and about the actual experience that we need. And I would hope that every five years and 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, we can look back on moments in our life and laugh at ourselves, right? Like, what were we doing there? There's gonna be, just like we look back to the, like the 1950s, they're like, you didn't allow interracial marriages, you Neanderthals, right? There's gonna be people who look back on us at the church and they'll be like, you didn't let gay people get married? What? They were sending people, they were trying to get ready to go to Mars. What do you mean you weren't going for this? There's always times in history where we look back and we just know a lot more. But part of it is also just being gracious to ourselves in history as we're going through our own real processes of figuring out where we're at as human beings and trusting that God is always meeting us in those realities. And part of what needs to happen in those processes is we gotta be able to name some of those experiences that we have that maybe were unhealthy. Maybe we're formative, but now we can grow from them a little bit. And that's how we begin to find actual healing in our lives. We need to go find people who are further along in the journey than us. Which, by the way, this is the most difficult task in the 21st century. Because we live in a time and place in history over the last 100 years where the generation who lived before us, whatever age span that you are, is not experiencing the same world that you're experiencing. Keep going back. Eventually, you get to about like 1914 and before, and for thousands of years, the world relatively looked very similar. If you were a farmer, you better bet that your great-great-great-grandfathers and grandmothers were probably farmers, right? And then somewhere came along where there was a generation that was riding horses around, and all of a sudden, they saw cars, and then they saw people walking on the moon, and one day, we're going to watch our kids with their robot legs, Right? <laughs> things are changing fast. And so the challenge with that is how do we accumulate wisdom? How do we accumulate wisdom when the world's changing so rapidly and there's parts of your experience experiences, right? As an adolescent who is figuring out flirting by texting. Guess what your parents didn't have? Cell phones. Right? And so how did they help you through a period of you figuring out your sexuality with somebody else when they didn't do it in the same way that you did? They had to call people's houses. Right? (laughs) Hello, Mrs. Miller. Is Catherine there today? You want me to talk to Mr. Miller first? Exit. You see what I'm saying? It was a lot harder than it is now. And so we need to be patient and gracious to ourselves in this journey as we accumulate wisdom. And know that we also live in a society that doesn't value old age well. We don't value people getting further along in the journey. And we live in Los Angeles. We live in the capital of stay young, stay beautiful, stay whatever, but just don't get old, my friends. But what we desperately need in the church is wisdom. We need people who have not only been healed, but they're healers themselves. We need people who share in our specific pains and hurts and death and brokenness who can offer us something. We need people who've gone through those pains and through those brokes and through that hurtness, and who can come out on the other side. I said hurtness. That's not a word. (laughs) And who can come out on the other side and say, ah, me too. Right? I'm, gra- I'm grateful for Candace and Crystal who are in the room who lived in a season where they couldn't legally get married and now came out on the other side, right, can be legally married, spiritually married. And that for all the young LGBTQ folks in here that you have people who you can look up to and say, oh, you made it. You paved the path for me. For Jordan who said, we did Haven in a garage, mother, right? <laughs> and now you guys just get to do it on campus. You need that shared wisdom of people who have kind of built the path for us. And that's where we're at in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 9. When Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. We're going to read this passage twice, by the way. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch, everyone's favorite Herod, heard about all that was going on. And he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead. Others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. Let's go back through it one more time. Luke chapter nine. When Jesus had called the 12 together, I want to stop there a second. Where we're at in the gospel of Luke means that you probably have already had to follow along. Jesus has already called disciples, which is incredibly important that Disciples is simply this idea of a student or a pupil or a learner. It is somebody who is learning something, not in the context of how we've learned things in the 19th to 20th century by sitting in well rows, right, even rows, facing a teacher and listening to somebody for seven hours. In Jesus's world, you learn things by following somebody by literally practicing what they do, learning how they think, being at their feet. So he had students who he had carefully chosen and his students were interesting because they were like the lowest of the low. They weren't the Harvard kids. These aren't the kids who got extra credit. These were the guys who like barely made it, were fishermen and tax collectors and zealots and all kinds of strange things. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's where I'm going to build my base. Because if I can work with this group, I can work with any group. And so... Being a student of Jesus is incredibly important for where we're at in the story. Following Jesus in Jesus's life is incredibly important. That there's this good news in this kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. That good news is not your capacity to say the right prayer or get baptized in the right church or to know the four spiritual laws, to have memorized tulip or whatever weird stuff somebody made you do. Your capacity to enter into good news is to see that you too are a child of God that you too are loved by God, that you are pleased, that God is pleased with you. That's what the good news is, that Jesus' ministry begins there, that these are the words that God speaks over Jesus, and that when we find ourselves in Christ, that this is how God sees all of humanity. That's good news, that we no longer have to strive that it's not about our capacity to do right or not do right, Do we keep all of the moral codes, Do we get enough of the Bible memorized. It's being able to recognize that you, that I, we are made in the image of God and that Jesus begins his ministry with that so that his disciples can see this. If you can believe believe that Jesus is made in this image of God, that Jesus is the son of God, then if the disciples can eventually believe that they are made in the image of God, then they could have the capacity to see that everyone is made in the image of God. And so where does Jesus go after Jesus' baptism? He goes around to all of the people who shouldn't believe that they're made in God's image. And he didn't hang around any of the people who thought they were correct because they got an MDiv. Right? That's telling for us. Jesus is trying to show us what it means to be a student of God. And to be a student of God is to be able to proclaim from the lowest of the low all the way up that you are sons and daughters, my friend. That you are loved and that God is pleased with you. We haven't done the disciple thing very well. Part of the reason that we haven't done the disciple thing very well is because Christianity, for the most part, in the empire that we live in, the United States of America, the most powerful empire that the world has ever seen. An empire so powerful that it can increase its defense budget by $70 billion. And it has a defense budget 11 times greater than the next largest defense budget in the world. And yet, we have 3,000 people who die in Puerto Rico. That kind of empire. That has all of the resources, but chooses to spend its resources on military might and power. That in our world, where we focus on power and security, We have made the disciple thing a game of cognitive beliefs. And so you have denomination after denomination, all battling each other in apologetics or who knows the Bible more, using the Bible as a weapon to show, see, we're closer to God. See, we move the things around in the right way. See, we're the righteous ones. And yet Jesus wasn't interested in that. Jesus was far less interested in what you think and far more interested in how you think. And we live in a world, we talk about this in here all the time, where we taught, people, we taught people to take the Bible incredibly literally, but we never taught them how to take it seriously. And because people haven't taken it seriously, we haven't been great students. We've just been great memorizers of the Bible. And those are two very, very different things. My wife recommended a book for me to read called No Drama Discipline. In the beginning of this book, it opens up this really powerful idea that we we avoid the word discipline a lot of times because the word discipline comes with a lot of negative connotations. That discipline generally means consequences or punishment. When I say I'm going to discipline my child, you think of maybe like a spanking or something like that. But the word discipline actually comes from the root word disciple that when we discipline our children, what we're really trying to do is to teach them the best way to be human. And for those of you who are parents or for those of you who were ever kids, all of us, <laughs> you know how hard it is to be a human being. It's the most difficult job that you'll ever have, just so you know. And we, you should use discipline in a way in which we are teaching people to be good students of their humanity. But instead, the word discipleship and discipline and the words that are kind of lumped with it have often been seen as negative. Or we've reduced disciple making to your ability to proselytize and your ability to memorize Bible verses. That is not disciple making. How do I know that? Because you want to know one of the people who quoted the Bible the least? Jesus. Why is that? That Jesus didn't quote his own holy scriptures as much as you would think that he would. Not as much as us Protestants do. We quote that thing through every freaking email that you get out, right? Do you have that aunt and uncle where they sound like Paul in their emails? You're like, nobody talks this way. (laughs) You can just say hello without including Titus in it. Like, you know, (laughs) It'll, it'll be okay. Do you know what Jesus quoted more than he quoted scripture? The natural universe. The first Bible, so to speak. Jesus would always say, Look at the trees. Oh, look at those birds. Oh, the kingdom is like a field. It's like these seeds. Oh, it's like little children. Jesus would use images that are accessible by everybody. He wouldn't use the biblical power games of his culture because he knew what they were doing. There was people with power and authority who were keeping others out of the temple. And Jesus said, not in my kingdom, not in this reality. I'll use language and images that are accessible by all. And yet thousands of years down the road, we find ourselves back in the same place, not using these beautiful biblical scriptures as a means to bring healing and life to the world, but we've used them to quite possibly, the Bible has been the most destructive book that humanity has ever seen. It also has the capacity to bring healing because it has eternal truth. Not like you press an elevator at the end of your life, go up eternal truth, but that these things are true in every generation to be a good student, to follow God, to practice kindness, to live in generosity, to go about justice. These things will be true in every generation. And to go about these things, you'll have to work against some of the systems of the world. So understand that Jesus had disciples, but then Jesus also had the 12, which he calls, and these were the apostles. And it's not about, can you memorize who the 12 were? It's more about this holistic idea that there's a process, that Jesus is always looking for these great students of humanity who want to follow this way of the Christ that's going to show us the very best of what it means to be human and the very fullness of who God is. But then Jesus also knows that as you grow in this thing, just like a little child, one day you're going to get to the edge of the street and your parents are going to let go of your hand and say, you're going to walk to school on your own today but we've lived in a church world where we don't want people to walk on their own. We want them to keep coming back to the authority who stood in front, who has the MDiv. No, my friends, your job is to be empowered so that you can move from being a student to being an apostle, which simply means a sent one, that you can take whatever healing that you found and that you can go into the world and heal other people. Candace and Crystal have the best capacity. I'm really on you guys today. Thanks so much for that to tell other lesbian couples about their hardships and the hope that they've gone through. They were disciples of these things and now they're sent ones in their work, right? I am in a 12-step program. I get to tell other people in my 12-step program, they've got to show me a better way because they understand sobriety in a way that I don't, right? Or they, they understood sobriety in a way that I didn't. And they showed me how to be a student, and then they showed me how to be a sent one. That you begin every 12-step group admitting, I am powerless and my life has become unmanageable. And then you eventually go to your 12th step, which says, now that these things are true about me, may I pass this message on to the next addict. And if you're an alcoholic, you have the most powerful message to talk to another alcoholic about. The person who's raped, you're the most powerful person to talk to the other person who's gone through those horrible circumstances about. Right? For those people of color in this room and the specific experience that you've had living in a white patriarchal dominant society, you have a narrative to tell that I cannot tell. And vice versa. I have a narrative as a straight white male to, t- straight white male to tell other straight white males about how do we reclaim and renew and redeem um, the part of society that we've been in, that we don't no longer use the power and the privilege that's been given to us in ways to keep it for ourselves and to oppress and repress other people. But how do we understand our positions and release that power and empower others to succeed and do well and to be healthy? You have a unique place as a disciple and you have a unique place as an apostle, but what you need to be gracious to is that you're in the process of learning. And some of you need to hear this well, you're not ready to be sent and that's okay. If you need healing, if you're in a space of deconstruction and you're angry and you're mad and you're cynical and you wanna challenge and you wanna burn the whole house down, follow the rabbi, my friend. Learn to love yourself well, learn to be loved, learn to see your capacity to love others. There will come a, come a time where you'll have something better to share. There's nothing more terrifying than when people don't realize that. And they are zealots out there saying some horrible stuff. We've all, I've been that person, right? Like I, I went to like my youth group and I signed a pledge card. And the next day that I'm out there because I had my spiritual awakening in one night. And I'm telling all my friends what horrible sinners they were. They're like, two days ago you were drunk with us, dude. What are you talking about? You were passed out in Kyle's car, Right. <laughs> I didn't let any maturity happen in that process. And we have to have some maturity happen in the process. So Jesus gave them power and authority. Power and authority comes from two places either it comes from a place of fear or it comes from a place of love. Power and authority at its worst comes from a place of fear. I will proudly stand on this platform every single day that Donald J. Trump is in political office and say this. He comes from a platform of fear. This is not about being Republican for me or Democrat or any other political party. It is the means in which the man communicates things. And it addresses power and authority through a lens of fear in which you consolidate power to make a few feel more powerful at the expense of a lot of others. I will make no apologies for that. Take away my tax credit. I don't personally care. What I care about is that we always call out the powers when those powers are doing unjust things. And there have been Democrats who have done unjust things, and there have been Republicans who have done unjust things. I just see the man open his mouth every day and it doesn't work for me. And if you're a voter of Donald Trump, love to have the beer with you and let's talk more about it. My brother-in-law, Ryan, who knows he listens to our podcast every week, a proud Make America Great Again evangelical white Christian in Wisconsin who voted for Trump, him and I have these conversations every week because I want to understand, because I'm not trying to scapegoat somebody new in the process. What I know is, is that when we come from positions of fear, we hurt people because we're going to marginalize people and we're going to oppress people. And whenever you see leadership that's accumulating power and trying to make themselves more powerful, that's a fear position. Because the opposite is true of Jesus. Jesus gives his disciples power and authority, but he gives them power and authority to empower people, not to accumulate power. Jesus gives his disciples the power to become powerless. What a different model. Jesus sends his disciples to where people are at And and Jesus is not doing it in a colonial sort of way, right? In the narrative, and in the text, what you'll see is that Jesus sends them to heal. Jesus sends them with nothing for a reason so that they can practice powerlessness, practice this posture of this suffering servant whom we call king. Isn't that a different model? Here's what's interesting about the Gospels. The Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Luke are not trying to prove that Jesus is the son of God. What did he just say on a Sunday morning in church? Yeah, most of what they were trying to do was talk about this kingdom of God as the primary language that is used between all three of those gospels. The gospel of John is trying to do something different. It's called context and it's called timing and it's called read a few books. So the Gospel of John was written like 80 years after Jesus. And during that time, there was this everybody's favorite heresy, Gnosticism. And that's when the Gospel of John was being written to combat Gnosticism that was going on in the early church at that time. But these other Gospels are always hitting on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they were all about the here and now. They were all about trying to change reality for human beings now. How often do you see Jesus talking about heaven and an eternal life to come? Like 1% of 1% of the time. Isn't that fascinating? That Jesus is talking about kingdom in this place, but something that we've lost is the political power that the gospels had. Jesus was talking about kingdom in the midst of what? Another kingdom. That's how you get killed, my friends. And he did, because he kept talking about this other kingdom and this other reality in which everybody is brought up. And guess who doesn't love that narrative? The Caesars of the world, the pharaohs of the world, the powerful of the world, the top 1% who want to control wealth and not disperse it. This story is eternally true because it's true in every generation. There will always be powerful people, right? And sometimes powerful people can do corrupt things things that hurt lots of other people. Jesus was very aware well of this, and Jesus is constantly challenging the religious system and the political empire of the day. How do I know this? Because it says the kingdom of God. But we grew up in the United States of America in the 20th and 21st century, and we were not taught to read the gospels that when Jesus says the kingdom of God, he is making a politically revolutionary comment. And why were you not taught to read that? Because we're the most powerful empire the world's ever seen. So we got to rewire some things. That when we hear Jesus talk this way, we got to say, oh, he's not talking about the elevator up kingdom to come. He's saying, you're going to go confront the systems now. He doesn't say, go heal people so that they can go to heaven. Like, do you see any of that in this? What does he send them to? To flesh and blood and sweat and dirt and pain and hurt in this world at this moment. The entire thing is about that. Don't believe me? Read all of the books, my friends. Read all of the gospels and see what Jesus talks about. Start reading the gospel of Matthew, Mark, and and Luke from a political standpoint. See how Jesus talks about kingdom. And instead of thinking heaven later one day, start thinking, how come every time that Jesus says this, it's about real people in this situation now? and how Jesus is disrupting these kingdoms and these empires and these systems. And Jesus is not handing out power and authority with fear. Jesus is always handing out power and authority to distribute more love. What a different system that we're talking about now. And it is revolutionary. And that's why for the first 300 years of Christianity, Christianity grew from a group of 12 to millions of people, why? Because they challenged the empire and they challenge the systems. This is why later you'll have Paul who will say, doesn't matter if you are slave or if you are master. Doesn't matter if you are male or if you are female. Doesn't matter if you are Jew or if you are Greek. Those are subversive words to an empire that very much wants Roman men in power. The whole thing is a subversive document. And what does that mean for us? Is that we have to relearn what it means to be students of this Jesus. And we have to relearn what it means to be sent ones who go about in the world. That the only way that we're ever going to offer healing is if we find healing ourselves. I love these quotes from Maya Angelou. She says this, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. I don't trust people who don't love themselves and tell me I love you. Right? You can't give what you don't have. There's an African saying, which is be careful when a naked person offers you a shirt. If you can't be a student who's learned to find healing and who's learned love and learned the truth about your humanity, how will you ever pass that reality to other people? Instead, what we're going to pass all along, right, is a domesticated gospel that cares very little about what happens now and is only interested about what happens one day in some other reality. And yet Jesus seemed to be the person least interested in that conversation. But we seem to be the ones who preserved it for the sake of power. If you go back to my head slide, please. So, some tools for the road, and this part will be quick. Three things to take away. One is powerlessness. Jesus sends all of his students into a place of powerlessness. Think about this again. We're saying that we serve a God who is naked and bleeding and suffering. That's not grandiose. That's not powerful. That's not somebody sitting in the White House on a toilet tweeting at 5 a.m., it's very different. Am I right? Those are two very different images. Be careful what you do with those. (laughs) Both are naked men though. And that's important for us to recognize. Who is the leader we're following? What kind of student should we be? Powerlessness. The other is mutuality. That whenever Jesus sends people somewhere, it's in this posture of mutuality. There's this realization of, you have something that I also need. You have something to teach me. And the church for too long was in a posture of colonization. We have something to offer you. You are welcome as we rape and pillage your lands. We do that all the time. In black and brown neighborhoods still, we do that all the time as we send people around the world. I'm always fascinated by the—I'm fired up today. I am always fascinated by the Facebook post when I see the white person on their two-week mission trip surrounded by black people, yet they know no black people in their own context. Isn't that weird that we will give billions of dollars away around the world for black and brown people, yet we will let people in our own cities go under-resourced and impoverished and broken? It's an interesting world that we live in. Why? Because we've been taught a gospel of fear and not a gospel of love. Because we've been disciples about a kingdom that will come later instead of a kingdom that is here and now. And what we're being sent into is to change some people's beliefs so that they say the prayer right, instead of actually bringing real healing and change and development to real communities and real people around the world. These are two different narratives. Which one are we gonna follow? So we need to be powerless. We need to live into mutuality as we we practice and follow this way of Jesus. And I had a third point, which to be honest, I cannot remember as I say this right now. Must not have been that important. And so I'll close with this. Leave it better than you found it. Actually, I do know my third point. Fantastic. Hello. Thank you. There are a lot of you in this room who've been really hurt by a lot of other people. And the final point of Jesus is about maturity. Shake the dust off your feet. We all have to learn in this room when there's a time to fight and when there's not a time to fight. I'm so grateful for some great leaders in our community who sent me this document that John MacArthur sent out this week, which was a really small view of humanity and of God. And they were asking me, do we have a response for it? And I'm so grateful that these well thought out, healthy human beings in our community are part of larger communities that are having responses to what John MacArthur and that group signed off this week. If you don't know what it is, you have Google. You can go look at it later. But for me, the process is when do we engage in a fight and when do we not engage in a fight? There's always going to be the John MacArthur's of the world who, in my mind, preach a gospel of fear. Not helpful for me. I want to spend my time going about preaching a gospel of love. There's going to be some times that I need to respond to the John MacArthur's. But most of the time, I just want to keep pushing forward on this road of love. Now, that's going to be different for every person in this room based on your experience and based on your hurt and based on your brokenness and based on what kind of healing that you need. So if you're in that place where you need to sign some documents and write some new theology and respond in whatever way you need to respond to the John MacArthur's, you should do it. And the body of Christ in this place will support you in those efforts. And if you're in another place where you don't want to respond to those things, and you don't even know what I'm talking about. Praise God. And do that. Whatever path you're on, trust that Jesus is with you in that narrative. And so shaking the dust off your feet is the same thing that Jesus will say in other places. Don't cast your pearls to pigs. There are just some debates that you shouldn't get in. Because no matter how many times you try to articulate yourself until you're blue on the face, it will not change anybody's mind. And you're not here to change their minds. Let God do the work of transformation and you keep doing the work of love. And we'll trust and we'll see which narrative wins out at the end of the day. Because this one keeps moving forward year after year, even in difficult times. We're here today, 2,000 years after the fact, because this gospel is winning out. And I want to keep putting my energy and focus there. And again, that doesn't mean that we don't respond to the fear thing, but you've got to choose when that's appropriate and right for you. And so the final thing is leave it better than you found it. I'm grateful every single day to be a pastor at New Abbey because I believe wholeheartedly that you are a community of people who are gonna leave the world better than you found it. You are gonna show people a Jesus where they have less to unlearn. You are gonna take away the barriers to entry that many of us were given in following this Jesus you are going to open up this Christ in a way that is much bigger and much more universal and much more broad, a path that is inclusive of every group of humanity and that is not held hostage by patriarchy and white theology and by the powerful of this world that we live in a time and place where the LGBTQ, right, brothers and sisters in our world will be the saviors of Christianity. We live in a time and place where women will be the saviors of Christianity. We live in a time and place where people of color will have new frameworks, which are really just old frameworks, right, of powerlessness and mutuality and shaking some dust off their feet to show us a better way of Jesus. I am grateful to be a part of a community that is practicing this way that we are learning to be these kind of students who are healed with a much more diverse story so that we can be sent ones who heal in a way that leaves the world way better than we ended up finding it. Would you find a few people and answer these questions? What can being an apostle mean for your life moving forward? Maybe another way of saying it is, is there a bigger gospel or a bigger kingdom for you to fall into? Or maybe you don't want anything to do with this question. Talk about what you want. Enjoy.